I'm Kane Winstead. Hello, Internet. I'm Matthew Derrigish. You're listening to the Untold Talks of Spider-Man, where we'll be taking a look at the deep cuts and forgotten stories of the Spider-Man library, looking for lost gems and what it truly means to be a Spider-Man story. Today, we have yet another guest on the show, the prolific Adam Chapman. Woo! Readers of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com will remember him from his reviews of all new, all different Avengers, but you most likely know him from his long-running podcast, Comic Shenanigans. Adam, welcome aboard. Thanks so much, guys, and glad to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you on the show. Uh, this one, uh, this this episode, will be covering uh, one of your picks, right? Uh, Spectacular Spider-Man 215 and 216. Absolutely. When you ask for a deep cut, uh, this is what I came up with. All right. And it is a deep cut indeed. Um, let's see. This one, like I said, Spectacular Spider-Man 215 and 216, The Predator and the Prey. Uh, this one leads straight into the Clone Saga. So this is the last pre-Clone Saga story of Spider-Man history. After this... We go straight into power and responsibility, and things are never the same. Uh, this one is plotted by Tom DeFalco, and the first issue is scripted by Mike Lackey, and the second issue is scripted by Todd DeZago. Uh, art is by Sal Buscema on both issues, but the colors on the first issue is by Glennis Oliver, and the second issue, 216, is Joe Adrini? And Andrini, help me out here. We'll take it. We'll take it. <laughs> All right. Uh, also, I wanted to note in 215, Mark Powers is credited as Cowboy. Uh, he's he's the editor on this book, and he's credited as editor in 216. 215, credited as Cowboy. I'm sure there's a story there, but uh, we don't have it yet. I assume it has something to do with the Clone Saga. <laughs> All right. Uh, a, a note on availability. This one is unfortunately not available through Marvel Unlimited or Comixology. And the Essentials Collection for Spectacular stops at 11, or I'm sorry, uh, 114. So as far as I'm aware, the only way to get your hands on this issue is to go diving through some back issues. Uh, unless you're in Britain where you can pick up Astonishing Spider-Man number four. Uh, for those who are perhaps willing to forego the thrill of that particular hunt, being diving through back issues or traveling abroad, just to go pick up a reprinted Spider-Man story. This is one you can get for pocket change on eBay or my comic shop, but let's support local businesses when we can. Absolutely. Now, I should point out that a few pages of these issues have been reprinted in the uh, complete Clone Saga Epic Collections uh, Volume 1. Um, I have it both in print and digitally, so uh, I believe in 216 you have four or five pages, but uh, really it's not the main story. It's just what's going on with a mysterious figure who looks a lot like Peter Parker, who's wearing a class ring a lot like Peter Parker, who seems to be uh, on his way to New York to visit Aunt May. Man, I wonder who that could be. <laughs> I wonder. Honestly, how did he get the class ring? I don't, I don't know that. <laughs> well, I think that was always the point like I, I don't think they really thought it out that, that far ahead at this point but the whole point was that you know this guy's coming he's got the class ring maybe he's the reader of peter parker if you read letters pages from this time uh people are figuring it out and they're like wait, wait a minute maybe this is the clone from you know amazing spider-man 149 so people were actually figuring out what was going on uh they weren't actually you know really surprising people as much as maybe they thought they were huh that's nifty right and you know the original plan if I recall correctly, was to have Ben Riley be the actual Peter Parker and then the Peter Parker be the clone. Um, so he could, if, if he was the actual Peter Parker, I mean, he would have the class ring because it was his class ring. But that's that's another story. That's for the untold clone saga of Spider-Man. Uh, <laughs> Coming never. <laughs> Coming after the uh, after Slinger's month. Oh, man, it's coming up. <laughs> All right. Uh, just to jog your memory for those who perhaps have dove into this, reading this years past. Um, this one is the Scorpion teaming up with Philip Cussler Sr., a character that has only appeared in this comic, who is a fine China magnate who wants to <laughs> sabotage his son uh, for 
taking over his business, I believe. Uh, Mac Gargan realizes that after a hashtag treat yourself session with Cussler Sr., that he wants to give up the Scorpion life. Uh, meanwhile, Peter's life is in shambles. Aunt May, or rather a very convincing actress, but he doesn't know that yet, is on death's door for real this time. And he and Mary Jane are on speaking terms, and his dual identity is causing many sleepless nights, so you know stock Spider-Man stuff. This ultimately leads to him lashing out at Cussler Sr., hospitalizing him. JJJ is there, takes a picture, runs the story in the bugle. Um, Peter goes on a mad dash to find the scorpion in order to connect him to Cussler Sr. Meanwhile, a mysterious stranger visits Aunt May in the hospital. So that, that's that's kind of the rundown on on this issue. Is there anything that you guys wanted to add that's imperative to know before we get into the discussion of this? Uh, not really. I mean, it, in in the story, it definitely makes reference to a recent storyline at the time of the Scorpion and the Shroud series, uh, which I don't think most people have read. So, right, yeah, there are a few references into this, but they're they're. It's always man, I can't believe the Scorpion did that and then like the a note like you want to know what the scorpion did go by shroud uh you know in, in the the typical like 90s fashion of please go buy this other comic uh we're starting to hurt for money <coughs> well there is one thing that you, you did kind of miss and i don't i don't uh, uh i don't uh, doubt why you forgot it because it's so useless but there's a weird green uh sludge entity in the sewers Oh. oh yeah, yeah the 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 sludge of you feel bad. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to Deus Ex Sluggo in a minute. <laughs> hey, that sounds like a Dan Slot villain. <laughs> oh, boo. oh, shots fired. We anyway. <laughs> editors note: This is recorded hot on the heels of Amazing Spider-Man 800. We might have to do an aside episode so Kane can get out all of his haterade on that. If you if you guys thought that our trouble episode was contentious, uh, <laughs> Matt and I have basically been yelling at each other for the past week about Spider-Man 800 or Amazing <laughs> 800. So anyway, anyway. Um, so okay. Diving into the story here. So Phil Kessler Sr.'s scheme is to gain access to his son's computer at work and then delete essentially their like QuickBook file that has like all their accounting and then file a complaint with the IRS. Um, I'm not quite sure why the Scorpion is needed or what Kessler Sr. was doing in a sewer and then just like happens upon the Scorpion and is like, hey, why don't we team up? Well, like, there's a little there. So when they go back to the hideout, Kessler's been hiding out from society for a while, apparently, and he has this whole bunker in the sewer. Yeah, it's weird, but, uh, you know, if you're hanging out for the sewer for a while and you find the other guy hanging on the sewer, I guess it's nice that they tried to become friends first instead of immediately fighting. Kind of makes you question you know, all the superheroes that fight immediately upon meeting. Here we have our supervillains, and they're whining and dining when they first meet. Oh, having fine cappuccinos, being sewer buddies. <laughs> um, yeah, I would... <laughs> but yeah, it, it just it, it struck me as a kind of strange impetus for a story, um, especially the setting. I didn't know if Shroud had anything to do with that, um, because yeah. as as Adam pointed out, not a lot of people have read Shroud, myself included. Uh, these these stories were just a little bit before I was reading <laughs> um, at all. To you know, I was four when this story came out, and oh uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, guys. I'm, I'm the baby of of the the podcast collective here, I believe. But um, so, uh, Adam, is there is there anything you can you can shed light on on this situation? Is this is no, coming? Yeah, not with the Shroud, but I will say, like, you mentioned, like, why does Custler need a Scorpion? He needed him for the safe. Um, when they first kind of break in, he d they, he does lead him over to the safe, and he needs, you know, the Scorpion to help him open the safe. I don't actually know if they said exactly what was in the safe, but he was at least required for that part of the burglary, so that worked out for Custler. All right, well, yeah, I, I don't think they ever mentioned what was in the safe either, and I was a little confused because 
Scorpion shows up. He's like, so you just want me to wreck the place, right? And Custler's like, well, no, that will only hurt the insurance company, not not my son. <laughs> and then, but then, and then he's like, all right, well, no, no, go bust open the safe. So, uh, whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's not used getting hung up on on tiny details like this. I mean, the detail is, or the the important part is that this guy kind of treats the scorpion with respect, and that kind of moves the scorpion into thinking, well, well, like. I'm used to getting pushed around and kind of treated as like the 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 muscle, you know, the the guy to soften up the the superhero before he fights the main villain of the issue. Um and his relationship with Kessler kind of pulls him out of that and realizes it's time to start thinking about getting out of the supervillain game and treating himself a little bit better. But so I think there's a little more going on here that could have been played on but ultimately never was it seems mm-hmm. so th- this whole custler scorpion relationship i found to be the crux i mean it really should have been the crux of the story but i guess you know it's spider-man's book so we got to get back to peter but this idea that the scorpion needs to focus his anger and rage instead of just thrashing the place he needs to thrash the safe because that's the target get on and move he needs to focus he needs to be more professional essentially in a uh goon-esque kind of way and Kessler's relatively kind to him and relatively understanding despite the fact that he seems to have his own anger issues as well we never really get why he's so hell-bent on hurting his son to the degree that he goes through to do it um well well i i think i think it's you know the story doesn't dwell on it but there there's definitely a point and i definitely i had to reread it to uh to catch it because the first time going through i also missed you know what exactly was his motivation but he mentions in dialogue that his son pushed him out of his business and then if you take that and then couple with his like opening monologue where he talks about being a self-made man and kind of like building everything up from from nothing you you can kind of see that how being pushed out of his business would really anger someone with oh, those convictions. I I agree, but if I was pushed out of the business, I don't think going to sewer dwelling and hiring supervillains and chasing people with pipes is as re- Plus, the son's super understanding and very high-minded at all times throughout the story. Who is well, Philip I mean, Jr., by the way. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Adam. No, just to, to interject, I mean, at the very beginning, when you have the son kind of going into Jameson saying, like, I need help to find my dad. He says, like, he hasn't been the same since his breakdown. So they kind of established, no, I guess in theory, you could kind of view his motives as suspect that maybe there was no breakdown. Maybe he was a dick to his dad. But I don't think the, the book really plays it that way. It plays it as this is a man who's worried about his father, and his father thinks that his son has betrayed him. And then he kind of picks up a surrogate son in the, in, in Scorpion. And, you know, there's, there's a definitely a kind of a father relationship that starts to, to, to form between the senior Kessler and the Scorpion. The Scorpion kind of needs someone to treat him like a human being, and now suddenly someone's kind of being very fatherly and trying to, you know, help him and treat him to nice things and show him that he doesn't have to just be what he's been. So it's interesting that after this breakdown, even though there's a lot of anger in Kessler Sr. towards his son or, and perceived uh, a slight and pushing him out of his company, he still has that ability to connect and be fatherly to someone in a slightly different way in terms of the Scorpion. Yeah, I agree with all that right there. Right. Yeah, and I, I think that kind of touches on what Matt mentioned earlier, is that w- the crux of the story is that relationship between Cussler Sr. and the Scorpion. And it's just... It, it, the story's at its strongest when it's examining those aspects, and not to jump too far ahead, but especially when uh, Gargan visits him in the hospital. Um, like, that. that's that's... That that exchange kind of sets up the the rest of the store, like all the other exchanges that follow. I can't. I think that was the first one, um, in in all those different scenes of of epiphany slash confessions. But we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so what I wanted to talk about another one of the things was this sewer gang scene. Um, <laughs> so uh, so. You know, they Cussler and Scorpion trash the China shop. Spider-Man gets on the case. He starts shaking down P- 
people trying to get information. He finally shakes down out of one guy that something's going down in the sewer. Spider-Man shows up. The sewer's empty. Next panel, the sewer is filled with guys who seem to pop up out of nowhere. And this is like the weirdest bunch of like mooks that I think I've ever seen in a Spider-Man comic. Like one is quoting Shakespeare. Another seems to be like maybe Australian. One guy's like, I'm going to defenestrate them. Despite the fact that they're in a sewer and there are no windows to throw Spider-Man out of. And if you're going to throw someone out of a window, Spider-Man is probably one of the worst ones to throw because he can't fly, but he can stick to walls and has the web shooters. So, like, I don't know what he was thinking. But, you know, I don't have, like, a greater point here. Uh, I just wanted to point out, like, this was a weird scene. And Sal Buscema definitely did a great job putting in a lot of emotion and, like, personality into these guys that, um, oh, the scripter for this issue, Mike Lackey, uh, that Mike Lackey uh, put in himself. But it was just, it was a really fun moment. Uh, definitely a definitely silly and might have kind of like broken some of the the attention especially this like father-son thing going on with the scorpion and uh Cussler and kind of the scorpion's idea of, well maybe i should start going straight because i believe it's around this time where he starts coming to that realization yeah and with that um you know that scene you mentioned with you know all the uh the guys in the sewer kind of start rushing spider-man the next page which has that awesome some kind of action shot it seems like there's suddenly a lot more of these men too like it's absolutely packed but i mean to december's credit every single person feels like they have some kind of weight to them they all have kind of their own identity there's no they're not just kind of a, a weird kind of a montage of you know just kind of grayed out features like every person kind of has their own look uh which i do give them credit for because there are so many thugs in that scene yeah i mean Everyone has their own little weapon. Like some guys got lead pipe. One guy's got a like medieval mace. One guy has a shotgun. Like it's, it's definitely a really well detailed and drawn scene. Um, you know, like you said, like it's, it's not guys grayed out details. Everyone is meticulously drawn, um, you know, worth the dollar fifty price tag on this comic. Um both then and now actually. <laughs> <laughs> One of those few uh few instances where the cover price still reflects about how much you actually have to spend to get this comic. <laughs> so Kane, um, would you say yeah. this is the hamburger eating scene of this comic? This is 100% the hamburger eating scene of this comic. Now, if if we can get DeFalco to come on the show uh, and and kind of expand upon, or, or rather in, into the comment section and expand upon it, then it will truly be the hamburger scene. But, uh... <laughs> uh <laughs> all right. Well, um, I guess after that, uh, that that's when... You know, Spider-Man fights fights the Scorpion, and the Scorpion kind of uses Cussler's advice to kind of, like, start using his head a little bit more and focus on using his tail and incorporating that into how he fights. And Spider-Man even notes that, like, wow, this guy's fighting a lot smarter than he normally is. I should probably stop messing around. And then proceeds to just wipe the floor with the Scorpion. <laughs> um <laughs> Right, I should note in that fight too. Uh, this um, the cover notes Spider-Man crosses the line, and there's one punch where Spider-Man basically has him do a the Scorpion's head basically has done a 180 and is cocking further to the side <laughs> with his chin going. And I was like, oh man, did he just like take out the Scorpion? Like, did he lose control? Like, I thought that was it right there for a split second. <laughs> Those right. two panels really make you believe that's true, though, because yeah, as you're right, they, he does that crack. Uh, you have his head kind of spinning backwards, and on the next panel, you don't even see his head in the panel. So it's like, is it just totally spun around? We don't want to show this. Yeah. <laughs> right, and then and the the lead up is oh yeah yeah he's fine he's fine. Uh, <laughs> don't don't worry, the scorpion lives to have his jaw punched off later by <laughs> Spider-Man vis-a-vis Doctor Octopus. But anyway. Um, 
the uh yeah, and the lead up to the story is that like Spider-Man is losing control. He's frustrated, he's angry. Uh in you know, I kind of blew past it when I said that he was shaking down, you know, informants trying to get this information about the sewer, but like he was I I mean, he was he was going almost like Batman levels of like putting the fear of God in people. Um but it's I, I guess this is the fake out for the Spider-Man crossing the line. And what actually happens is after this fight, Spider-Man's really worked up. He pops up out of the sewer and Cussler immediately goes at him with a wrench and Spider-Man just kind of reacts and swats him across the street, blows him through a brick wall. And Jameson is of course there and is able to get a photo and runs, finally runs the story about how like, Spider-Man, like Spider-Man, you know, just beats down a defenseless old man. And that that's kind of where the first issue ends. And we move into the second issue. And like, I mean, Spider-Man stories have never been kind to Jameson. Like he's, I, I mean, I, I guess as, as we've gone on past like brand new day, he's become more and more of a sympathetic character as, as they kind of remove the bugle from him and make him a more pathetic character kind of as we see in uh the new spectacular chips darsky but right here he seems almost like evil um like uh Custler jr starts talking about like you seem to be really enjoying the story about my dad almost dying and like it wasn't spider-man's fault and then jameson's well the truth sometimes you just have to change it when it involves spider-man and how did you guys feel about that? Like, is that kind of like in character with how Jameson was portrayed around this era? Because I, I'm like I said, this was a little bit before my time. This is about probably like the fuzziest uh, handling I have on Spider-Man history is this this era right here. So if you could help me, like fill in some of the gaps here, is this is this out of character? Or is this more in character or or what? I don't necessarily think it's him being evil. And I think, I mean, part of it, I think at the end of the page, they immediately figure out a way to kind of walk it back. Um, so, you know, in the, in the first part of the storyline, like even when he got Angela in to kind of, or I guess Kate Cushing was going to be giving out the assignment about trying to, you know, to find the old man. Like even then he was very much playing up the fact that, you know, he's going to be able to sell newspapers by, you know, a, a human interest story of looking for this Kessler senior character, even though he knew the guy in, in, in theory, should have a little bit more of a heart but this is the second part of the issue or so second issue i should say is very much about uh jameson understanding that he's putting putting his work so much forward and he's trying to get the bugle back on top there was a time where he was kind of ousted from the bugle and fireheart took it over so this is during the period where he's kind of in control again and he's definitely trying to you know push that and you know save the newspaper industry that kind of stuff um and then at the end of this even this page when he finds out that, that one of his employees has died and the rest of the issue is very much him exploring the fact that you know he hasn't been with his emotions he's been kind of cold um he's put you know worked forward he's you know hasn't been spending the time with his wife that he should have um you know he has been kind of a kind of a dick and that he has to kind of figure out how to be a better person and the end of the issue which is a, a really funny scene to me when he kind of tells robbie i'm spending the night with my wife and Ro robbie's face is like he's so excited about this i'm like that's weird <laughs> <laughs> well, I get Robbie's perspective because I've been in that situation before. Your boss has just been on edge and for, you know, months. And all of a sudden, something shifts in their life. They're doing half. You don't have to deal with them for a few hours. And it's good for you, too. <laughs> True. But um, it's more of the implication. That basically, his boss has just been like, I'm spending the night with my wife. Wink, wink. And he's like, yeah, go do it, Jameson. <laughs> hey. Maybe he'll be in a better mood the next day. <laughs> <laughs> They're coworkers and bros. I get it. <laughs> that's that's true. But All I right. feel like as a result, that there is an arc. There's a definite arc for Jameson in this issue. So I, I get what you're saying that he comes off kind of being a little bit more. Uh, you know, if we're looking at the shades of black and white, he's a little bit more like on the darker kind of evil end here. But I think that they immediately try. They they want to show him in a certain light so that then they can have him go through his own kind of personal realization and arc. He actually has more of an arc than Peter does in these issues. Um, although Peter does have, you know, at the end of the first part, definitely has that moment of being like, you know, this, I've tried to live my life by, you know, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. And now within a moment's lapse, I've failed. So 
you know, kind of pushing him through the ringer. He's obviously hasn't been sleeping. He's exhausted. He's, you know, he's been pushed to the limit and that is impacting his ability to make good choices. And now he's hurt someone by accident. Um, and, you know, so his personal arc is kind of trying to confront that anger that's been bubbling up inside of him. Does he do as good a job as the other writers were doing at the exact same time leading into the Clone Saga? Maybe not. Uh, Jam De Mateus was probably doing a, a better exploration of that aspect of Peter and dealing with everything that happened in pursuit and dealing with what, what it has meant for his family, losing his parents again because they ended up being you know killer robots. Uh, this is Peter in a really rough time, but this tries to show how he's dealing with the anger or really not dealing with the anger. Right, and like I kind of wanted to talk about that because there are quite a few mirrored scenes in the second issue, all of them kind of around that whole like confessional epiphany of having your double life, one aspect of it taking too much control of your life. Uh, like, you know, Jameson talking to his wife, saying that their their relationship has become estranged because he's at the bugle all the time. Gargan talking to... Um, to himself and to Kessler about, you know, being the Scorpion too much has really neglected his, his own personal feelings. Kessler Jr. saying that his life as a businessman has interfered with his relationship with his father. And then Peter doesn't really have that. You have, you have what it looks like Peter talking to Aunt May, but it ends up being Ben Riley. But Peter gets this in the form of, when he does corner the scorpion who is not fighting back is not in the scorpion costume and really just wants to be left alone so that he can live his life. You know, Peter's about to go and basically murder the guy. And then this goop shows up <laughs> that has been kind of like lurking in the background. And there's, there's no reason. Like I, I did, I, I thought it might end up being like man thing I thought it might end up being um, literally anything. It, <laughs> I, I don't know if this was supposed to be the red herring for the teased mysterious stranger that was on the cover of, I think, both issues was like, uh, you know, figure out who the mysterious stranger is. And if the goop was supposed to be, you know, supposed to knock you off the trail of the, the Ben Riley reveal at the end of the second issue or what. But this goop holds, like, it starts, like, absorbing Spider-Man so that Gargan has enough time to run off. And then Spider-Man kind of realizes, he says, like, the goop shows him. And I wasn't quite sure if they meant, like, literally or metaphorically uh, shows him his anger. Um, what did you guys, like, did you guys have any takes on this, like, green sludge thing? Like, was this a reference to something that I missed, like... Because when I think, because like when I think green slime in the sewers, I think Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I, I we do have a turtles expert on the line right here, but I I couldn't really gleam anything. Look, just because they're sewers doesn't mean it relates to the Ninja Turtles, man. <laughs> <laughs> Look, okay, okay, there's slime, there's sewers, there's New York. Literally, if they had thrown pizza in there, it would have been obvious. Like I, I'm just I'm just saying. <laughs> The ooze has no yes. empathetic qualities. It just makes people half man, half beast, or the other way around. Well, <laughs> like I, this, the slime never shows up again. Yeah, and as far as I know, and it, it really is just a Deus Ex Machina. And here's the thing: in a year from now, when you remember, oh, we did an issue talking about this that scorpion story, you will not remember the green goo. Nope, we won't. <laughs> I can tell you right now because. I've already almost forgotten about it. Editor's note, in the one month it took for us to get to this point, uh, I had, in fact, forgotten about it. <laughs> what what kind of sucks about it, too, is this slime literally just resolves Peter's anger. And I don't know if this is one of the last times that they use the spider as opposed to Spider-Man for Spider-Man being so angry in 90s. But... No, they, they would continue to use it during, uh, I believe, Back from the Edge, which would have been the first... Spider-Man story, or sorry, Peter Parker story after Power and Responsibility, so they weren't done with that. Oh, good. It um, got worse, actually. Shoot, I yeah, I got my timeline messed up on that, and I thought this resolved that somehow. Because he had to face his anger, so that would have made some sense, at least. But what sucks is, so, this issue, um, he's tracking down the Scorpion, who's not in costume, and I think it's important to note through this entire story, the Scorpion's been able to take off his costume. He hasn't been stuck in it. 
as has mm-hmm. been his problem usually. Uh, but Peter just, well, Spider the Spider beats the ever living tar out of Mark or Mac, Mac. Mark. I always Mac. mix that up. I don't know why I can't get that straight. But on our yeah, yeah, keep going. All it would take is like one of those scenes of the reflection of him looking what he's doing to another man to realize he's crossing the line again in anger of him crossing the line just a minute ago. And that should have been the resolution. Like it should have come from within. It being this goop out of nowhere showing him that and then him not learning anything just makes the story not have much resonance at all so 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 you're telling you you go you go (laughs) i was just gonna say it's interesting that you mentioned that idea of you know being able to you know seeing him in a mirror is that literally the next spider-man issue which is web of spider-man 117 you have a a moment where he starts beating up the clone and he looks and like there's like some metallic surface or whatever and he kind of sees what he's doing so we saw that in the next issue (laughs) Oh, that's funny. I mean, I was just reaching for a cliche here, but yeah, wow. <laughs> it's 90s Spider-Man. There's cliches everywhere. <laughs> I've got a question for you guys. So obviously okay. the main brunt of these issues is about the Scorpion, but we do have that thorough line of the Mysterious Stranger, which obviously we know it is. But how did you feel about how that was kind of being parceled out? I mean, uh, at the end of the first issue uh, in the letters page, they actually have um, basically a listing so you can follow along in all the appearances that the mysterious stranger has made so you can actually kind of see the progression of this character and then in the second issue that we read today we actually get to see you know them finally coming face to face with each other which is obviously a pretty big moment um how did you feel about reading that and the kind of the, the surprise which may, it may have not been a surprise for us obviously but when you have that scene of peter talking to may to may the nurse comes in she's like oh you don't see that every day he looks and you see spider-man you, you thought you were seeing peter but now you realize oh, crap, this is someone else. What's about to happen? Um, how did you feel about how that was written, and how do you think that would have played in 1994? Yeah, yeah, 94. Um, I definitely thought it was handled well in this issue. I mean, it, it's hard to replicate the surprise reading this in 2018 because we, we know what's about to happen. We know that's Ben Riley. Uh, I thought the scene of, like, Peter, what well, looks like who you think is Peter, like, thinking about someone while walking to the hospital and then... Peter Parker actually walks by and the guy says, Oh, Oh no, he's here. I got to split. I thought that was, I thought that was smart. And that was, that was an interesting way to, to introduce, well, I guess not introduce, but tease the identity a little bit. But then that, um, the, the hospital scene, I thought that was really smart just because we had had, like, like I said earlier, we've had a lot of scenes that mirrored these kind of like epiphany confessionals and, and, Peter's analog for for all those family par- family uh, members would have been his aunt. So we're sitting there, we're reading it, we're expecting some sort of similar similar uh, conversation, but it gets cut short because Spider Man swings by, and we're all like, and then yeah, and then we we find out it's Ben Riley. So I thought that was really well done because it's still surprising if you ended up picking this up after the fact that you knew that Ben Riley was going to show up and that Ben Riley looks like Spider-Man and everything. Like, I thought that was handled really well. I, I had to do a double take um, on that entry around where um, he, he looks and sees Peter and I got to split. And, because it does, you know, it's the clone. It looks like Peter. And I was reading, I was like, was this a mystery? Oh, no, 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 no. Clone saga. Okay, here we go. Here we are. All <laughs> right. And uh, I just kind of let it, wash over me i didn't think too much about it because i was more focused on our dear scorpion <laughs> well the thing about scorpion is that i think the next time we see him and i could be wrong but i believe it's in a spider-man unlimited issue um during the clone saga and he i think everything about this unfortunate this character arc he's kind of thrown away he's i think at the time used by Roxon. he's put in a new costume uh, more abilities than ever before. He's actually pretty cool at that point, but um, unfortunately kind of undoes any of the character work that was kind of done with the character here, which I liked. I mean, um, Scorpion never really had much of a personality, so, you know, they actually tried to make him a little bit different, and, you know, I, maybe I don't want to be a villain anymore. Maybe I want to be able to do something else. Um, it's an interesting juxtaposition of, you know, Peter going through a period where he was going more and more into his double identity and being less and less Peter, more and more Spider-Man, and you have this other guy who for years has just been stuck at being Scorpion, and done nothing but be scorpion and i mean if i asked you to really say a lot about matt gargan as a person as a character you probably couldn't say 
much because they've never really given him much depth. And so it's disappointing that they ended up going nowhere with this. It also reminds me, one thing I liked about Scorpion on the uh, 90s animated series is that issue where he's uh, living with uh, the vulture and is, and is, you know, is kind of chained in his house. Um, but, you know, him trying to have a new life. And at the time he was stuck in being the Scorpion costume in that, uh, in the animated series. But, you know, he had a girlfriend. He had a, you know, he had priorities. He wanted to be something more than just a thug. He wanted a way to get out of his costume and be able to be a regular person again. And it, I, because I've always loved that issue, I think that's part of what I, I liked about, you know, the Scorpion's arc in the series. And I wish that they hadn't just thrown that away the next time we saw him. To be fair, the idea that he's trying to let go and then Spider-Man just comes and beats him up would uh, reignite that hate, I believe. And the idea he wants to soup up and then focus his rage on him on a supervillain does kind of fit the mold of uh, what he was being taught throughout here by Kessler. True, but I mean, Peter does let him go. Like, after the, after the <laughs> mysterious goo comes him down, he does let him leave. Yeah, within an inch of his life. <laughs> <laughs> He could have killed him, and he didn't. Aw. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I guess I guess you could say that the story is kind of like a casualty of the 90s and that, you know, this this reexamination of, of, you know, a villain and trying to flesh them out a little bit more was is definitely something you saw, you know, maybe um, in, in the later half of the 80s. Uh, we definitely saw in, in, you know, some of the stories that James D. Mateus was putting out. Uh, but then, but then we go straight into the clone saga. Everything's got to get bigger and badder and have the biggest laser rifle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, now I want a Days of Futures past esque wall of the casualties of the '90s and Spider-Man. And just... <laughs> well, I, I guess next time I'm bored, that that'll be our uh, <laughs> that'll be our featured image for the for the podcast episode, like I did for the Trouble. Uh, episode. <laughs> All right. Um, so I was guess. This, uh, sorry, I, I have a few more comments actually. If you don't oh, mind. Okay. Um, yeah. First is, was this the first time either of you had ever read this story? Uh, for me, yes. Hard yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, the second is, um, so I mean, it's gonna be different for you guys than it was for me because when I first read this, I was, I mean, I read this maybe a year or two after the fact, but I was probably you know twelve, thirteen years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what did you think of the? Our work by Sal Buscema. I mean, when I first saw it, um, I was in my younger phase where I think I didn't appreciate Sal uh, nearly as much as I would in later years. Um, I, you know, I was reading books with like Tom Lyle on uh, the Objectivist Spider-Man. Uh, Mark Bagley was on Amazing Spider-Man, and now I'm forgetting exactly who was on. Um, uh, I think Butler was on Web. So they all had much cleaner styles. And then you had the kind of the dark, uh, jagged edges of Buscema on Spectacular. And I think now I can kind of appreciate it a lot more and enjoy kind of the angles he does and how cartoony it at times can be. But he's able to really draw on a real raw emotional uh, level. Whereas as a kid, I didn't really appreciate that. But I guess you guys, with a more modern context, what did you think of uh, Salazar on these uh, issues? Matt, you want to take that? I mean, yeah, so this certainly isn't my first uh, Sal work that I've seen, and this definitely plays on maybe some of his more weaker points when going through Spider-Man stories. I think some characters look a little too surreal to kind of land the emotional impact sometimes, but it still sells it. And I think, like we were pointing out earlier, all the details on the various gang members popped through. I just feel like some of the more surreal stuff like we've seen with The Child Within or I've seen him do with uh, Dr. Octopus in the past uh, worked a little stronger. But, I mean, these are definitely beautiful issues. It's just if I was to point someone to Sal's work, this wouldn't be my uh, go-to issue. I, You know, I'll, I'll agree with that. Like, I'm, I might, if I wanted to point or highlight Sal's art, you know, with just one panel, uh, probably that gang, gang scene would definitely be one that popped up in my mind. That or Harry's death in the in Spectacular 200. But um, I I really like uh, Buscema's art. Uh, you, you know, like like Matt, this is not the first time I've I've been exposed to it. But um, I'm definitely drawn to it. Um, I really appreciate it. Trying to think back to when I was like 12 or 13, or like when I just started reading comic books um i I still think this would have been something that i liked but that was also would have been around the mid 2000s so you know i would have been reading stuff like jrjr so 
you know, I would say that I would prefer this to to JRJR during like the JMS run when I started reading uh, Spider-Man uh, to kind of answer your question in a weird roundabout way. <laughs> How about you? Do you have any notes on the artwork in particular? Or? Uh, um, in the first, uh, I guess, in issue 215, I was really struck by some of the, actually, not less about um, Busema and more about the colors, but um, I thought the color work was much superior in the first issue because we had two different colors here. Um, I really liked the coloring on the first shot, I think, we, we get of Spider-Man uh, when he's at home and they're trying to call him to get, give him an assignment at the vehicle and he doesn't really want to, you know, answer the phone. Uh, it's a very somber tone, but um, I really kind of dug it. it. It really, I think, spoke volumes about the emotion that the, that the character was having. Very deep, dark colors there, but... I thought they were pretty effective. Um, and Buscema's, you know, uh, rendition of Peter is very much in keeping with the kind of the, the John Romita Sr. or the, kind of the, the Ron Friends version of Peter. And um, I like that. It's a very classic look. Um, a lot of artists kind of give him a slightly different look, but this is kind of my Peter in terms of, you know, the way he has the hair kind of falling down his hairline. Like, it just, it just looks like Peter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll second that. Like, this is... Um... Probably like it's it's a nice mix of of the modern kind of take um, versus uh, versus the classic one. Kind of kind of like what you said, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a frenzian, if I can use that term, kind of kind of take. But the the looser kind of inks that Buscema uses and the harsh angles, the lines gives it that that modern look so it's it's not quite the clean happy faces of jr senior um but it's still evocative of those so i i I can definitely see your point there and and i agree with it uh were there there, hmm? oh sorry i was just gonna say there's the page where uh, Jameson and Custer Jr. are checking out the scene of the robbery. And at the end of the page, so we have a, a bunch of different shots of Jameson on that page. And I think, I think it's really interesting how, um, and it's both good and bad, um, that they kind of play up how Jameson is, is almost like a walking id. Like he's, he's constantly shifting between the most highest emotional points he can get because you first he's like, I don't want to talk about my links with the Scorpion. So he looks extremely worried, not just a little worried, like, aghast and then then he's like super mulling it over and then he's like super excited about you know the people is going to be back on top like there are no there's no halfway measures in terms of how he illustrates jameson's um you know his his personal um ticks on his face and I, th- I think that kind of again kind of plays into what one of you said about how at times it's almost too cartoony or it goes a little too far but i think with a character like jameson it kind of works but um, when you then have him doing evil things and you have give him like kind of his evil face and again it's the most evil face he could have it definitely pushes those extremes for Jameson. Right, I definitely spent more time on that that face. Uh, I know the exact one you're talking about, like where it's like a super tight, super tight a shot of his face <laughs> and he's just like this wide like Joker esque grin, uh, thinking about yep. you know how much money he's basically going to be getting from this story. Um, I thought, you know, like, like, like I said, like it's Joker esque. It's very emotionive or um, emotionive. Uh, very, uh, um, I've completely lost the word now, but, <laughs> um, yeah, cartoonish is definitely how I would describe it. And then whether or not you think that helps or assists or uh, hurts or assists the story, I guess is, is your personal opinion. But, um, Definitely, for, for for sure. He's the only character he does that to as well. Like, I mean, he, he kind of gives um, Custer Sr. that kind of over-the-top kind of manic look, but it, he has it consistent. It doesn't really change, whereas Jameson's the only one where we see extreme range, and again, it, it kind of makes him more of a cartoon character, but like a character like Jameson, most people kind of write him that way anyway, so it doesn't feel that out of bounds. Right. Um, I mean, you, you can look at this character and just really see see it come to life if you just think back to the the jk simmons um from the spider-man one through three uh the mark Raimi one or um, wow mark Raimi, uh <laughs> sam Raimi. and <laughs> I, I need to make some coffee or something <laughs> uh but yeah yeah i, I mean I, I guess i guess the point i was trying to make here was that uh jameson kind of seems to work best when he's at these like almost cartoonish you know uh you know, swings of, of, uh, emotions. 
Absolutely. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I'm, do we have any more last last points or anything we want to talk about before we move on to the next section? So we've hit the we've hit the end of the episode or end of the issue rather. Yep. Uh, yeah. I, right. I think I've uh, I, I've come up with as many questions as I could ask. <laughs> all right. All right. So for the next section, does this feel like a Spider-Man story? Um, what what part? What aspect of Spider-Man do you think this story speaks to? Um, Adam, like, do you uh, do you, do you think this one is has any particular legacy that it fits into or adds to? Um, for Peter himself, not necessarily a lot. It, it definitely plays on the familiar tropes of guilt uh, and responsibility, and that he can't kind of because of his power, because of what he can do, he has to kind of be on his guard all the time. Um, you know, he can't just be an angry walking mess. You know, he needs to get sleep. He needs to calm down. He can't just lash out because you don't know who you're going to be fighting. And, um, you know, he definitely plays on that element of his guilt and also the classic trope of, you know, uh, the bugle being against him and everyone kind of being worried about Spider-Man being a menace. And, uh, you know, he gives him, gives uh, Joan Jameson a, a reason to actually fear him and actually want people to think that he's a menace. He's, yes, he's, you know, downplaying the fact that Custer was a little bit crazy and definitely was an instigator, but it doesn't change the fact that Spider-Man still did something that he shouldn't have done. So in terms of playing on kind of familiar Spider-Man tropes, it definitely goes with that. And that it also plays in the identity, uh, sorry, the question of double identity. Less with Peter and more on some of the other characters here, but it is still uh, an active trope being used. The, how do you manage, how do you balance between different identities? Uh, it's not necessarily a great example of that for Peter, but it's definitely something that's at play. All right. Would you, would you say this one would work as like something approaching a quintessential Spider-Man story. Like, like we have like the platonic ideal of a Spider-Man story, whatever that is. And then, you know, permutations and steps away from that. Uh, how close would you say this would be to like, if someone was like, give me a Spider-Man story and you gave them this one, would, uh, would you, would you think they had like a pretty okay understanding of, of what like a typical Spider-Man story looks like? That's really tough because, and the main reason why it's hard to say is because the one thing element it has that most you know, of the kind of the typical quintessential Spider-Man stories don't have, and this one does, is a very pissed off Peter Parker. And you kind of you start with a loaded gun, basically. Like, and so you kind of have to say, well, this is this is you know this is this is not a bad Spider-Man story. It's just, you know, it's it's about questions of identity and responsibility. However, you need to know going in, Peter's had a rough time. Go. I mean, so it doesn't really work as well on that level because you're not dealing with kind of a, a Spider-Man at rest. You know, you're not dealing with, you know, mm -hmm. we, we come in and, and Peter's in neutral position and now we're just going to play him. Um, he's already in a very specific emotional state where I think with usually those types of issues you would give to someone, then like, you know, we should bring Spider-Man story here. You go. You're usually working from a, a place of the character's at, you know, his normal resting position and not he's already worked up. So that's the only thing that kind of really detracts from this is that it's a very specific slice of Peter's life, which makes it harder to say this is a quintessential story. All right. Yeah, and I'll, I'll agree with that. I think those are some really well put points. Um, Matt, do you have anything to add? So I, I feel like the crux of this, as far as it being a Spider-Man story, is all around that cliffhanger. You know, he lost control and he hits this guy and... That should be the main thing that we're playing on the next episode. But instead, he flies off the handle again. And so he really didn't learn the lesson. And so he's really diving in on that. And in that way, this feels way more like a Batman comic than a Spider-Man comic. Interesting. And I, I just... Mm, it, it feels off from Spider-Man to me. Because Spider-Man usually comes around to doing the right thing. Which is something they hit on. And the double identity bit that you brought up in just the issues prior that was dealing with Typhoid Mary. So the fact that we're hitting this, we're hitting it again right after him hitting this dark angle repeatedly just really feels out of place. At a certain point, Spider-Man's jokes are supposed to lighten him up. Like that aspect of the character is supposed to be there for it to feel Spider-Man. And True. it's just and, absent. Yeah, and I mean, and part of that obviously is that they knew where they were going. You know, they knew that the clone saga, well, forever, however long it was going to be, they knew it was about to happen. They knew they were going to take him out. So the whole point was to show they were kind of pushing Peter darker and darker because they were going to bring in 
and then show this is a guy who had everything taken away from him and was able to rise above. And isn't that really more what Peter Parker should be uh, and more who Spider-Man should be? And they're kind of just show that, you know, this guy that we've been reading about for, you know, the last five years of comic book time uh, ended up not being the real guy. And it's part of because he crumbled um, when, when he was put in, you know, under all of this pressure, whereas, you know, the who we thought was the clone did not. Um, so it, it, it kind of colors the issue, right? Because as you said, we had a bunch of months of, you know, uh, of all four different titles really hammering the idea that this guy had kind of started to lose it um, and was starting to become the spider and less about Peter. And again, we were seeing this in other Marvel comics at the time. They definitely did this with Daredevil, you know, that he became just Daredevil and he wasn't really Matt Murdock anymore. In fact, in the, I'm trying to think, um, in the first month or two after Power and Responsibility, when you head back from the edge, you had a whole storyline with Daredevil and him was saying, like, how do I bury Peter Parker? How do I just let him go and just be this? Um, so that, you know, it's, it's a very specific time period because they were purposely doing this to him. They were purposely making Peter Parker as kind of dark, dark in the muck as they could so that they could, you know, show, oh, this other guy's better. Um, reading it now, it's a little bit harder to read. Well, I should also point out, you know, this is one of the more reviled eras of Spider-Man, so, uh, it all kind of <laughs> lines up. <laughs> all right. Okay. Uh, well... All that being said, um, now we get to the part if we say this one should be reissued or untold. And I'm going to go ahead and say that I think this one should be reissued, uh, kind of to the points that Adam was talking about, Rita Scorpion, uh, where you don't really get a lot of looks into the Scorpion's personal life like and this this is one of the few stories that really tries to give him a personality uh you know until probably until the the dark rain mini that he had that really just kind of cements him as just a thug and that's his whole personality so i would say this one be reissued just because that's an interesting story beat it's not really something that's picked up on but kind of missing from this character who's been around since Amazing Spider-Man number 20, not number nine, like the editor note in the first issue mentioned. Uh, number nine was Electro, uh, 20 was Scorpion. <laughs> Good eye. I just took them at their word and figured they just pulled up the right issue. I wouldn't have thought to check. Uh, well, you know, um, modern era has told me to never trust the, uh, the Spider-Man editors, so... Uh... <laughs> I'm just I'm just firing shots left and right today. I'm just, I'm in the fighting mood, I guess. Too dumb kid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, how, how do you guys feel? Should this one be reissued or untold? Ooh, Adam, do you want to take the next take? Yeah, sure. Um, I you know I'd say reissued. I mean, it, it has elements. I mean, again, as we pointed out, I mean, it's not perfect by many many means, um, but it has a lot of things of, of redeeming value. Um, again, you know the. Jameson kind of taking restock of his life. That's that. It feels like a genuinely earned moment. You know, someone dies and he realizes he's kind of screwed up, and um, you know, and he has to reevaluate re the priorities in his life. That feels like a really, really real moment. Um, you know, we have when you have Gargan trying to realizing he could be more, and that maybe if he stopped being the Scorpion, uh, Gargan could actually have a life that he likes. Um, and, and and I think it's one of the only times we really get a good look of what Gargan even looks like under the costume at this point. Like. You know, there are elements here that really work. It's ironic that maybe Peter's uh, elements are the ones that don't work as well. Um, but there's a, a lot slower here to enjoy. And again, you get to see more of the Scorpion as a person. You get Jameson as a person. Um, a little bit less of Peter. But again, you also have some really cool stuff happening with the beginnings of the Clone Saga. Like, the Clone Saga became an overbloated mess, but the build-up to it was exciting. You know, like, when you're reading these issues, like, I read... Like, I missed Power and Responsibility when it came out uh, when, the first time. But again, I was maybe 10 years old, 10 or 11 years old. But I read Back from the Edge. And I remember reading the uh, the letters notes about what was happening in Power and Responsibility and that kind of stuff. And talking about, in particular, this particular issue. And I remember being like, you know, people were excited. And uh, it's easy now to be like, well, this was a much maligned period. And it became a giant bloated mess. But there's something exciting and pure about the idea that before marketing got involved, before everyone kind of said, we can make this into something bigger uh, than it needed to be, it's something exciting when it was more pure, that there's a mystery going on, there's this guy, oh my god, it's the clone. That's really cool, and this is where you really get to see the beginning of that. So, I'm going to go ahead, and we're going to have a first here. I'm going to say this should remain untold. 
Now, I say that, but I'm mostly in agreement with you two. However, I'm thinking of this in the context of why we brought up this idea to begin with. I wouldn't encourage anyone to go check out this comic because it has interesting ideas, but it stumbles with those ideas so poorly that it's really just a wet thud of a story. It's somewhat disappointing, and it's disappointing because it brings up interesting ideas and then doesn't really execute on them. So, you know, first half interesting, second half, eh, and, you know, a story is only as good as its ending. Maybe you need a green monster to take away that rage. <laughs> the Hulk? Uh... <laughs> I, I, I see your point here, but I feel like enough of the story like the the spider-man aspect of the story i will definitely agree wet thud as you said but uh you know like adam said the the jameson arc seems to be really well earned and i i also really appreciate the examination of of mark or now you've got me saying mark gargan <laughs> uh matt gargan's uh you know kind of introspection uh i i think both of those those are were were well done well handled and, you know, deserves at least to be reread and have uh, modern readers kind of like mull over those things to kind of better understand these characters, I suppose, or at least Jameson. That's my other point, though, is I'd like to see that Scorpion be taken and redone in a newer comic and handled with a little more gravitas. I want to see that, but I want to see it done better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we, we don't have to come to a consensus here. Uh, but where we do have to come to a consensus is the web of rankings. Um, how, how, okay, well, how do you feel about it in relation to family business? Ooh, I would put it under family business. All right, you'd put it under family business. How about you? Uh, it's difficult. Family business is a hard one to benchmark, uh, which is on me because I complete. I, I'm the one who brought it up, just because I, the the story was such a miss, but the art was such a hit. Um, I would I'd be okay with putting it under family business. Um, how about how about you uh, you you Adam uh, <laughs> on our completely arbitrary web of rankings? Uh, <laughs> And we, we've decided that uh, family business will be the entry point right here, above or below family business. I, I Honestly, I think I put it above. I wasn't super enamored with that. Like I said, it's kind of a difficult one to, to benchmark because there there is a disjoint between the storytelling and the art. Um, but... Right, I was thinking this story is maybe a little more akin to the Marvel team-up that we read, because it, it, the Marvel team-up also was clunky at points, and definitely had more of that old-school art. But overall, you know, sung as a typical comic for the age, and had its highlights and its moments, and also, I think, had a bit of a stronger moment with Jameson, the whole press idea in particular. Uh, would you think this story's above or below that Marvel team-up? Ooh, I'm thinking, ah, oh man, thinking back to that team up, I'm I, I going to put it above the team up just because the team up was so turgid by the end of it. You know, the fourth issue, that courtroom scene, it was completely unnecessary. The arcs were over. It, it was just, it was, it was an appendix that wasn't needed. This doesn't have that. This, this hat presents all its, all its ideas perhaps too quickly. You know, uh, perhaps it could have spent a little bit more time on, on some of its points, but I'm, okay. I'm always, I'm always going to side on brevity. Um, and so I'll say this right. is above team up. All right. So then that puts us right back to family business. And then Adam, have you happened to have read the wonderful issue that is man, Mar man, Mountain Mariko chugging hamburgers <laughs> to, I have. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That tone said a lot. So <laughs> Do you think this story with the Scorpion is stronger, weaker than that delightful gem of Spider-Man history? I would say it's it's stronger than that. I, I'm not a huge fan of that that Man Mountain, Man Mountain Barco story. Ooh, all right. Ooh. I think that's a fair comparison too. All right, Kane, how do you feel about this story in comparison to pumping up? 
I mean, I like I like that story just because again, brevity is is kind of my deal, and it <laughs> Are was you really only putting it on top because it's one issue and not two. <laughs> No, 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 no. Not it's not just because it's one issue, but because it has an efficiency with that one issue. It tells a complete story from three three separate points of view, um, and it, nothing feels wasted. There's no fat to the story. It's well crafted, uh, and so I can appreciate the craft. Whether or not like the story itself wowed me, I mean that that's why it's it whenever we find a better like it started as our number one spot but there were never i never had any contentions with putting things above it um <laughs> especially the two we have oh um, well, yeah especially since the two we have are really i, I do want to point out there was a whole platter full of fat that was supposed to be lean mean drugs <laughs> oh all right okay um well which is just to say that censorship does kind of bring an interesting color to that issue i don't know if i feel better or worse about it knowing that but i think in comparing to this story which is the dark and edgy bit that you know wasn't really held back anything that was held back was for colorful angle angles or to have that moment of drama with the scorpion where we thought uh spider-man might have knocked his head off if there's red coloring in the background of that that oh, that would have i really would have been convinced you know um <laughs> right well I mean, I'm I'm content with putting this above team up below family business. Is is that where we're gonna land? I I'm comfortable with that. And sorry, Adam, I I'm hearing what you're saying. I don't necessarily disagree, but uh, I think that's uh, the democratic landing on this one. <laughs> it's all right. It's your show, man. Like, well, good. We want you to feel included. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well then, uh, I think I think that's that's it for the episode. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. If you haven't, please feel free to subscribe and leave a review for our show. It helps others find us and fills us with. Uh, oh, that's the wrong one. <laughs> More sausage. I know, right? <laughs> well. Well, I think that's it for the episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you haven't, please feel free to subscribe and leave a review for the show. It helps others find us and also helps us feel like we're not screaming into the void. Uh, if your show, if our show helps fill the void in your life, please consider joining the Amazing Spider Talk Patreon. Three ninety nine a month. I did it again. Three dollars and ninety nine cents a month <laughs> gets you exclusive access to the Untold Talks of Spider Man B title reviews the amazing spider talks amazing spider-man reviews as well as access to the members only section of our slack channel the amazing spider slack for those who have a split personality they call the void that is capable of destroying the world and that personality can only be repressed by a second donation tier boy do i have some great news for you the excelsior club is our second tier ten dollars a month nabs you commissioned artwork twice a year from spider-man artists you know and love in addition to all those great exclusive channels from the previous tier now please don't throw us into the sun <laughs> Are we doing a century episode next? What's going on? We can do a century episode next. In fact, that's what we're going to be doing. We will be doing The Century Spider-Man by uh, Jenkins, and it's going to be great. Well, thanks again to our guest, Adam Chapman. Uh, since we're polite here, we, we let our guests go first with our sign-out. So, uh, Adam, where can our listeners find you on the internet or follow you? Uh, the best place is on the Comic Shenanigans podcast. It's a twice-weekly twice show. I think we're up to 580-something episodes now, um, so it's been almost six years. Uh, usually I do reviews episodes on selected comics from a specific week, and then usually we have uh, review, uh, sorry, interview episodes with uh, different creators. Uh, this summer we're going to have Ralph Macchio, um, Pete Woods, uh, Brian Wood, um, I think Jim Kruger and a few others. So uh, it's always a fun time trying to uh, hunt down these amazing uh, people and talk about their work in comics. Awesome. And so do we find that, like, what, what podcast service do you, are you on, like iTunes and Google Play and that stuff? Yeah, you can find it, I think, mainly on iTunes and on Stitcher. We're on there as well, so that's the best place. Or you can go to uh, comicshenanigans.podbean.com and uh, you can just listen to it right there. Uh, I have one last thing before I sign off. Um, and I, 
it's just a, a funny thing that just kind of hit me. Uh, when reading the uh, the second issue that we read today and all the scenes in the hospital, if you just put like Benny Hill music to it, it'd be really funny because they just keep running into each other. Uh, <laughs> And then Peter's like, you know, kind of running after Gargan and he bumps into Jameson. It's just like everyone's in this hospital right now. And if you just put the right music to it, it's pretty funny. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I like that too. Uh, and I'll, I'll put links in the show notes for people who want to find comic shenanigans easily and might be a little bit too lazy to use Google themselves. I understand. <laughs> I'm the same way. This is, this is, judgment-free zone right here links will be in the show notes uh <laughs> matt where can we find you on the internet you can find me on twitter at magical matt 42 or you can find me hanging upside down in the spider slack channel where we're talking spider-man all week long <laughs> and you can find me on twitter at kane writes uh you can also follow the show on twitter at untold spmn or i'm sorry untold talks spmn uh you can also find us on facebook under untold talks of spider-man or email the uh the show at untold untold talks of spider-man at gmail.com uh we also want to uh extend a special thanks to the ellie badge for providing our theme song if you want to listen to more from the ellie badge check out the show notes for links and until a giant pile of goo stops us from podcasting, make mine untold. <laughs> I was going to say, until a millionaire beats more than David Thank <laughs> you.